Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. You can also find it on Facebook and SoundCloud. And you can support the show and gain access to our Patreon-only episodes, basically twice as much content, by going to patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Halper Show. On today's episode, I speak to Chasa Boudin, a deputy public defender who is running for the DA's office in San Francisco. Chasa is the latest example of a public defender running for DA on a progressive and decarceral platform. Chasa Boudin's parents, Kathy Boudin and David Gilbert, were members of the Weather Underground and were incarcerated when their son Chasa was just 14 months old for driving the getaway car in a robbery that tragically took the lives of three men. After law school, Chasa worked for two federal judges handling criminal trials and appeals. He then became a deputy public defender. I interviewed Chasa during a fundraiser for his campaign, which his family friend threw for him at his house on the Upper West Side. So before you hear the interview, you'll hear Chasa addressing the crowd and giving a spiel about why he's running. You'll also hear some cute interruptions from Arlo, the four-year-old daughter of the host who threw the fundraising party. Also a very important update, only 18 days before the first open seat election for San Francisco DA's office in 110 years, the current DA, George Gascon, suddenly resigned to pursue a run for the same job in Los Angeles. In a move denounced by the ACLU, Mayor London Breed took the opportunity to appoint Susie Loftus, her preferred candidate in the race, interim DA. The move sparked protests in the community and was seen as an unethical way for the mayor to influence the election in her favor, because now Loftus, as interim DA, comes off as the incumbent, even though she's not. The first act Loftus has taken as interim district attorney is to kill a misdemeanor diversion program focused on treatment and prevention of crime. Loftus has also been criticized by mothers on the march against police brutality for not holding law enforcement accountable. I think me and Kathy and a few other people have known him since I, I can remember, since I was five, I guess, in kindergarten. And we got to hang out with him growing up, and we knew that he was way smarter than all of us. We knew that quickly. <laughs> we knew that quickly. And uh, right away. And we also knew that he was going to do really special and important things with his life. We didn't know what that was going to be, but now we're starting to see that. So not only has he been an amazing public defender in San Francisco for the past seven years, um, but he's really on a path to, to, to make change. And I think when you think of politics right now, and as we grow up and get older and have kids, you realize that it is really about us and it is really about supporting the people that we know will make change and will make an impact on society. And so we love you and we're here to support you. And me personally, and I know all of us, Niki, Guy, those of us that have known you for a long time and are in the same generation as you, um, admire you, admire your courage for putting your life story out there and admire what you're trying to do for the people of San Francisco. And we know that this is only the beginning, and we know that this is only the first fundraising party that we'll have for you, hopefully, of many different elections. But we're, we're proud of you, we support you, and you're doing really courageous things. Thank you, Gideon. Thank you, Dina, for opening your house. You know, I, I gotta say that um, when I decided to run for office, I thought it was gonna be a lot of kissing babies. And until this party, it really hasn't been. But this is like a 
really good even ratio of children to adults here. So I, I appreciate that. Let me, let me say a couple things. I mean, this, this crowd is family. And so in a fast pace, you know, nonstop, Valerie and I are in four cities, five cities in a five day period this week. Um, you know, this is like, this is like home. The memories that I have of the people who I'm looking at, uh, of this space, of being on this balcony, of meals in this house, uh, are, are my childhood, are growing up, are who I am. And so I'm really appreciative of Gideon and Dina and all of you for opening your house and coming together uh, because it's, it's like a, a break from an otherwise, you know, pretty intense, grueling campaign trail. Um, you know, the, the thing about prosecutors is that most people look at what they do as sending people to prison, that their job is to send people to prison. And so a lot of people say to me, people who know me as, as you all do, why do you want to send people to prison? And, you know, you think about what does mass incarceration mean, you know, and, and, and whether it's something that we, we work on, as I have as a public defender, or whether it's something that we read about in the newspapers, and, you know, you hear about the statistics, 25% of the world's prison population, 2.2 million people behind bars. Mass incarceration is all those things. But for me, it's something much more personal, right? For me, it's getting dropped at the babysitter when I was in diapers and having my parents never come home. For me, it's going through the lines at the prison that were mostly black and brown children and, and mothers and sisters and wives to be able to see my parents. For me, it's the sound of the metal gate closing behind me after a prison visit when I was on my way back to freedom and my parents were on their way back to get strip searched and go back into the cages that they lived in for the 22 years my mom was in prison and that my father is still in. So why do I want to become a prosecutor and put people in those cages? Well, the answer is that we're in a really unique moment in American history and in San Francisco history. This is the first time in any of our lifetimes, and there's some people here who are a little bit older than me, but it's the first time in any of our lifetimes when there's a national consensus that the criminal justice system is broken, that we need to do something very different than what we've been doing for the last 40 years that's led to this crisis. And that national consensus is reflected not just in legislation out of Washington that even President Trump was willing to sign that marginally improves some criminal justice policies, but it's also reflected in the election of people who, like me, come from a criminal defense background. People like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, people who are running on a platform to end mass incarceration, like Kim Fox in Chicago, Rachel Rollins in Boston. Um, this is a moment when voters are actually electing people who are running on a platform to end racial disparities in a system that we know has been defined by those disparities for far too long. And in San Francisco, it's the first time in over 100 years when there's no incumbent running to retain their seat as district attorney. So it's a tremendous opening and opportunity for San Francisco to step up and play a role in this national movement. Now, all the years I've spent working as a public defender, visiting prisons, taught me some lessons that I think most of us in this group know pretty well, which is that the criminal justice system is not working. It's not working for anybody. It's not working for the taxpayers who foot the bill. It's not working for the victims of crime who have so little to show for the billions of dollars that we're spending to lock people up. And it's certainly not working for the children left behind, like me, who grow up visiting their parents behind bars. And it's not working for the people who go to prison. If you look at our recidivism rates, in California, they're above two thirds. Um, if, you, you know, if you look at San Francisco, the recidivism rate is actually above 100%. Crazy, but it's the definition of a revolving door. 
And so you say, how, how can we do better? What does it look like to imagine a system that doesn't simply focus on meeting out punishment to mostly poor black and brown people, but rather seeks to give victims a voice and break this cycle of crime and incarceration? Well, as a San Francisco public defender, I learned the hard way that our system that promises equal justice instead has a price tag on freedom. It's called money bail. That our system that claims to be focused on you know, victims' rights doesn't offer restorative justice as an option to almost anybody. That our system that focuses on you know, uh, uh, putting people who are sick in cages doesn't actually treat the root causes of crime. In San Francisco, 75% of people who are booked into county jail are either drug addicted, mentally ill, or both. But we're not giving them meaningful treatment, right? We have solitary confinement for them. And then we have this revolving door where they get let out, arrested again, and the punishment gets higher and higher because we have this thing called three strikes. It's not working and we can do better. We in this day and age with all of our resources, with all of our creativity, with all of the amazing work that folks like Waniki and Gideon and so many others here are doing. Hey. Chocolate cow cake. It's our first campaign event. I like it. I like it. I like it. She's good. Can, can she can she can she travel with us yeah, to the next yeah, yeah. one? Is she available? Oh no, can you come? Chocolate cookies. <laughs> chocolate cookies. No, chocolate yeah, she's good. Starlo Chocolate cookies. I, I like it. I like it. It's good. Getting shouted down. I better get used to it. I better get used to it. Chocolate cookies. When they hire aides to prep them for debates or whatever. It's true. It's true. No, you do. You do. That's a hard debate, though. You can't win that one. No. No winning. <laughs> so in, in, in my capacity as a San Francisco public defender over the last seven years, I've not just handled the trial cases and the more than 300 felonies, the more than two dozen jury trials, but I've also tried to attack some of these systemic problems, right? So I've I've led our fight in San Francisco against money bail. I helped found a national organization that does that work in more than 30 states. Um, and I also helped launch a variety of new units within the public defender and within the courts to replace bail with risk assessments, to begin advocating for people who are arrested as soon as they go to jail, to make sure that our local law enforcement does not cooperate with, with ICE and federal immigration. Um, and one of the things that I realized in this moment where we have this opening for the first time in over a century is that it's far easier to do far more, far more quickly through the Office of District Attorney. And there's an appetite for change. And if we can do it in San Francisco, we can create model policies that we can export all across the country. But to create that kind of radical change, that kind of fundamental change that people want in the District Attorney's Office, we have to start by fundamentally changing the people and ideas that we put in the office of district attorney. This is a race where all four of the candidates, and let me say a little bit about the dynamics because San Francisco uses ranked choice voting. That means November 5th is the election. There's no runoff, there's no primary, there's no party, you know, party primary, nothing like that. Voters put their first choice, their second choice, their third choice, and their fourth choice, their fourth choice. As some of you who read the New York Times profile on my campaign may remember, this is really shaping up to be a race between me and the machines candidate. Um, there's two other candidates and, and they matter because of the ranked choice dynamic. But the other candidate has the mayor, has the US senators, has the governor, has a lot of the machine behind her. She has the politics that you would expect a machine candidate to have. I have the grassroots organizations, the Harvey Milk Club, the Bernal Heights Democratic Club, the Latino Democratic Club, the teachers union at City College, 
right? The people who actually show up to volunteer for events. But we don't have the big money. We don't have the fancy names. We're doing this the old-fashioned way as a grassroots progressive campaign. But all four candidates in this race call themselves progressive. And so one of the challenges for voters who don't take the time to really educate themselves about the issues in this race, as in so many, is to figure out who is the real progressive and what does that even mean in the context of criminal justice reform. Well, I can tell you, when I went to law school and when my competitors went to law school, we were in the middle of a horrific wave of mass incarceration, of a decades-long trend towards longer and longer prison sentences. That's why I became a public defender, because I wanted to fight against mass incarceration, because I wanted to help defend the rights of individual people and find ways to empower individuals to not raise their kids the way that I was raised, going through metal detectors and steel gates. All three of my competitors in this race, who went to law school around the same time, chose to become prosecutors, chose to prosecute people for things like marijuana possession and consensual sex work, chose to defend police officers who killed unarmed civilians, refused to prosecute them. But we can prosecute someone who's trying to feed their family through consensual sex work or through selling marijuana. So now we're all progressives because that's what's popular. That's the trend. But if you want to know who's going to be committed to actually holding the police accountable, if you want to know who it is that believes in enforcing a system of justice where the quality of justice we administer doesn't depend on the color of your skin or what zip code you live in or whether you wear a uniform and carry a gun to work, I can tell you that that's going to be me. And to get my message out there, to compete with the police officers association that's attacking me through a super PAC, to compete with the establishment, it takes support from progressives all across the country. That's why I'm here. I'm so happy to be here and, and share my, my vision and my campaign with you, to have the opportunity to reconnect with family and friends. It's always a good excuse to be here. Um, and, and, and with that, you know, I'm very happy to take questions and talk about some of the ways in which um, we can make these changes and some of the ways that you all can continue to hold me accountable once I win, because I don't just want the grassroots groups supporting me today or protesting on the steps of the Hall of Justice after I win. I want them in my office helping to make the policy. Thank you. I, I also want to thank who I haven't seen in a long time, our Manhattan Borough President, Woo! amazing, Gail Brewer, thank you for coming, who I've known also since I was like two, three, you know, running around like Arlo interrupting people. Um, but, <laughs> but um, Gail and, and my dad knew each other way before I was born and did a lot of political stuff and other things together. So thank you for coming to support and it's wonderful to have you here. Any questions? I have a question. Can you talk a little bit about how you foresee, in fact, doing it differently, given yep. that all those people you went to school with go to prosecute, go to be prosecutors because they, the thinking is that's what we do, we lock people up. How right. do you begin to actually make that change in a position that is so entrenched in locking people up. How do you do it? So for people who couldn't hear, the question is, how do you actually go about making the change when you have effectively a, a staff in the district attorney's office that believe they're protecting the public and enhancing public safety by sending more people to prison for longer? So, so there's a couple answers to that question. One is you hire new people who share your vision. You look at what Larry Krasner did in Philadelphia. There was a 30% turnover in his staff within the first year. 
Now, I'm not saying my goal is to fire people, but there will be turnover inevitably, especially in management. That's part of it. But the bigger part is culture. And, and we all know from our jobs, wherever we work, whether it's in you know, the corporate sector and nonprofits and education, each institution has a culture. And for far too long, the culture of district attorney's offices, of prosecutor's offices, has been defined by two basic measurable metrics. One, conviction rates, and two, length of sentence. And those metrics have been falsely equated with public safety and with victims' rights. You know, we tell ourselves that we're advocating for victims and empowering victims by seeking longer sentences, or that we're doing something to protect our communities by having a higher conviction rate. That's just not true. And so the metrics that I'm going to use in my office to evaluate staff, to determine who gets promoted, and to gauge my own success when I'm being held accountable by the media and by my constituents are two totally different metrics. One is recidivism rates, so that we're challenging our attorneys to come up with creative ways to address the real underlying problems. Look, in San Francisco, 75% of the people booked into county jail are drug addicted, mentally ill, or both. It should be our responsibility as stakeholders in the criminal justice system to find a way to break that cycle to address those underlying causes of criminal behavior. That's how we keep our communities safe. Second, by finding a way to implement a restorative justice program that meaningfully involves victims in a healing process. So another metric is, what's the extent to which we're getting victims involved? Not just to testify at a sentencing hearing, but to actually have a voice in deciding how we can heal the harm that was caused. With those metrics and new staff, I think we're going to go a long way. Uh, but it's also policies. It's, it's some really easy policies to implement from the top. So one thing is not using money bail ever in any case because it's discriminatory, because it's, it's racist, because it makes our communities less safe and costs jobs and destroys families. Another thing is not using recidivist sentencing, never charging a three strikes case ever, never charging a racist gang enhancement or allegation ever because they're used to criminalize entire communities and social groups that have no connection to public safety. We can enforce the law in a way that makes us safe without discriminating. And some of those changes can easily be made from the top on day one. And if people don't like it, there's lots of other district attorney's offices they can go work in. <laughs> yeah, Katie. Um, thank you so much for doing what you do. And I'm just curious if you had an aha moment, like the moment you decided to run, what that was, and also how your parents responded when you told them. So it was more of a gradual decision um, for me to decide to run. And really what happened is the incumbent who has really been very progressive on a lot of issues, uh, including bail reform, um, including alternative courts, young adult court, uh, announced that he was not running for re-election. And I tried to figure out if I could get excited about any of the other candidates in this historic moment, and I couldn't. And so we thought about who would be a good person to step up and run with with a real progressive platform. Um, and it became increasingly clear that because of the work I've done, because of my life experience, um, and for a variety of other reasons, that this was you know, a moment that was bigger than any particular life decision that Valerie and I wanted to make about how we were gonna spend our time. Um, and there were a lot of difficult conversations as I thought about whether or not to run. Um, obviously, Valerie and I had a lot of difficult conversations over the course of several months. I think the single hardest conversation I had uh, as I was close to making the decision to run was a conversation I had with my father in his prison visiting room. And I sat across the table from him as I've been doing my entire life. And 
you know, I said to him that I thought I was going to do something in the year ahead, and that was different, a different track professionally. And he, I think, expected me to talk about going into impact litigation or, you know, maybe teaching or something. Of, yeah, I don't, yeah, not, I don't think he thought corporate, but, but um, you know, when I said to him, I think I'm thinking of running for district attorney, there was a silence, you know. Um, and in that silence, I heard him thinking, you know, my prison's really crowded already. Like, we don't need more people here. Um, but he's always, you know, always been supportive. Um, and you know, always loved me unconditionally, and we had a long talk about why. And you know, I explained to him that I think, just as one example, the work I've done for more than five years to end money bail through litigation has been slow, painstaking, requires changing the culture of the judges, requires changing the culture in the district attorney's office. Even when we win, there's constant backsliding, and people refuse to follow the law. Um, and this is the kind of opportunity that comes along once in a lifetime to actually make systemic change. And, and you know, as I've talked about tonight. So I think he understands that. Um, it was a difficult conversation. And I think that it's important for me in setting out on this path to know that I have people like him and all of you here who will be constant reminders of the values and principles that led me to make this decision. Because this is not about me. This is about a social movement that is national in scope. And we're at a crossroads. Like, is Larry Krasner and Kim Fox and Rachel Rollins the apex of this movement for criminal justice reform? Or is it just the beginning? And the answer to that depends very much on what happens in San Francisco on November 5th and on the decisions that those of us who are elected in those races make um, and the way that all of you stay in involved and hold us accountable once we win. Thank you. Give, give what you can, and let's keep this campaign going and support right. our friend Chazo, who we love and who we're so proud of. Thank you, brother. Thank you. And now my interview with Chesa Boudin. Make sure you listen to the very end for Arlo's monologue about Donald Trump. Can you talk more about how you, as, as DA... I want to say something. Okay. Okay. So, Arlo, we're... Can you give us a few minutes? Mom. You can listen, but because she's trying to record something that other people are going to listen to. So and it's about him and his his life, but then I can afterwards I can record you if you want about your life. You want to do that? But we no. just need we need to have a few minutes. You can listen, but it has to be quiet because she's uh, yeah. trying to record what we're talking about. And it's just the two of us. You can listen, right. but if you want to talk, you have to wait your time. Yeah. Is that okay? Cool. Okay. Awesome. Great. Okay. Thank you, Arlo. Thank you. Um, when did you get married, though? <laughs> when did you get married? All right. Let's see. Last question for the candidate. Uh, Are you engaged? I'm engaged. They didn't get married yet. Do you know that he's running for something? Do you know why we're here today? Why? He's running. He wants to be... Um, president? Kind of. A little bit. Like the president... Like, but, but he... 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 He does... He wants to be the president because Donald Trump is the one we do not like. That's, that is that's good. So Sammy true. Five. That's true. Yes. And so that's very good. We want to fight, against, we want to fight against him. And so he's trying to run for something that's not president. Do you know what a lawyer is? Um, yes. You do? Okay. So he wants to be like the, a lawyer to keep people safe without being mean to people. He doesn't want to be like a bully but, like Trump. Like, like, um... Like Romeo, 
Romeo's from PJ Masks. Oh, I don't know. We'll have to ask. We'll have to ask your parents. Um. So okay, you want to go? We want to leave up. We want to go talk to your mom for a little bit and your dad, and then we'll come get you and we'll switch. Yeah, we'll get you when it's your turn. Okay. You can. All right. But we we just have to talk two of us. Okay. You have to pretend we're gonna do a game. Okay. You have to pretend that you're not here. Because it's going to be a secret that you're here. Because usually just we, we wouldn't let people be around us. But because you're special, you can. Okay? But we can't have, the people can't know you're here until later. It's going to be a surprise. Okay? All right. He will not be eligible for parole. I'm not talking to you. I was just So what would you do, SDA? How would you, what do you think the, the appropriate thing to do to, to people like your parents? My, my parents were the drivers of a getaway car in an armored car robbery that left three people dead. Uh, my parents weren't armed. They didn't personally hurt anybody, but they were involved in a very serious crime, the most serious kind of crime. Um, and those kinds of crimes need to be prosecuted. Um, otherwise, we, there's no point in having laws, right? So of course, those kinds of crimes need to be prosecuted. They need to be prosecuted effectively and efficiently. But we should distinguish between the driver of the getaway car on the one hand, for example, and the person who actually carries the gun and shoots the gun uh, on the other. And in New York state law and in California until very recently, there was something called felony murder, which basically eliminates any distinction and allows for people to be prosecuted for murder, uh, even if they're just involved in a minor way in a crime. So I think that's a problem. I think we should prosecute those cases, but we should prosecute people in accordance with what they actually do. And whenever possible, we should give victims or in the case of people who are killed, their, their surviving family members, the opportunity to participate in the restorative justice process. Now, it may well be that in cases like that, prison is an appropriate part of the punishment and the way we hold people accountable, but it shouldn't be the only part of it. And it shouldn't be life without the possibility of parole. Um, my mother did 22 years at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility. While she was there, she almost accidentally made friends with one of the women who was a victim of her crime. And the way that happened is the woman who wasn't related to any of the three people who got killed, but who was driving a car that was carjacked by other people who were trying to get away from the scene, um, ended up volunteering in the prison. And my mom didn't know who she was, but they worked together. She was a civilian volunteer. My mom was an inmate in a program that this woman volunteered in. And they became friends over the, the years this woman was volunteering there. And it was only later that my mom learned about this connection to her case. And that relationship and that experience of um, getting to know this woman and getting to appreciate her humanity and the suffering that had been caused as a result of the crime was in so many ways more important and significant to my mom's transformation than the 22 years were. And I, I think remembering that what causes people to change and to appreciate the harm and to commit their lives to not doing harm in the future often has nothing to do with the length of the prison sentence and much more to do with the ways in which we as a society give them a chance for redemption. What is the status of your father? He will not be eligible for parole. I'm not talking to you. I was oh. So my father got a 75-year minimum sentence. He's 30, almost 38 years in. He'll be 75 this October. And he uh, will not be eligible for parole until 20. 
56. So he'll be 112 right. years old. Can that be challenged? Can that be appealed? What's the... There, no appeals, no nothing to the courts. Uh, the legislature could theoretically pass uh, a new law that allows people, say people over the age of 75, who served more than 10 or 20 years to be eligible for parole automatically, uh, or the governor could grant my dad clemency. Those okay. are pretty much his only paths to release. And why was your mom, why did she have a different outcome? A lot of different reasons. One, one reason was that um, the trial in my dad's case preceded my mom's case. And my dad, along with Two other people were tried together. They were all convicted. They were all given 75-year minimum sentences. And then my mom um, negotiated what's called a plea deal where she pled guilty in exchange for a, a reduced sentence. Mm -hmm. um, my dad and his co-defendants all went to trial. They all represented themselves. They didn't have lawyers. They refused to recognize the authority of the, of the court. And so they were given the maximum possible sentence. Wow. Um, and how old were you when this happened? I was uh, 14 months old when my parents were arrested. The trial in my dad's case took a couple of years, and my mom finalized her case. Um, I was about four at that time. Yeah. You talked about how you would go to the jail and all these other people who were affected by this. And you are not obviously the typical case. You are now running for, running for DA. What opportunities did you have? that made your story so different from the outcomes that so many people have when their parents are incarcerated? Most kids with parents in prison experience a lot of developmental challenges. I, I, I did, you know, behavior issues, learning disabilities. There's a trauma when you're separated mm. from your parents that has lots of different impacts on your ability to engage socially with peers, to perform well in school. Uh, not to mention the, the hard, associated hardships, collateral hardships, from loss of income from a breadwinner and so on. Um, and the expenses of maintaining a relationship, going to visit and, and paying for phone calls from prison. So I dealt with all that, but I was lucky in a number of ways. One is that I landed in a very stable family where I had two parents and two brothers who raised me as one of their own. Um, most kids with incarcerated parents have more instability. They bounce from one caregiver to another. They're raised by a single parent. Um, Another thing that separates me from the majority of kids with a parent in prison is that I'm white. Mm -hmm. And most people in prison and most kids with a parent in prison are not white. They're black or brown. And we know that being black or brown places you at tremendous risk in our, in our society right. in terms of poverty, in terms of trauma, in terms of uh, uh, police brutality, in terms of likelihood of getting arrested and incarcerated. Um, and then another thing is just the resources that my extended family brought to bear to support right. me through this process. I had so many friends and family, uh, many of whom were here at this party today, who drove me to visit the prison, who supported me through, um, through temper tantrums, who helped me be able to, um, you know, see a psychiatrist, a child therapist, really, to, to, to see academic tutors to help me get back on track, to be able to go visit my parents whenever I wanted to. Um, all of those privileges are just not available to the vast majority of kids. And those things were critical for me to overcome the early childhood challenges. And end up at a place like Yale and a Rhodes right. Scholarship and Yale Law School. Right, yeah. So yeah, your story, I mean, it's very atypical where you, your, your situation is atypical. Um, and yet, even in your relatively privileged situation, you've suffered these hardships. And um, I didn't know that, but it makes a lot of sense that people have like higher rates of, of uh, 
developmental issues or learning disabilities. Did you ever rebel and become like reactionary or conservative? Like, were you ever angry about your parents' politics? And I was very angry at my parents for you know in individual moments and yeah. in certain periods, um, and you know I took that out in different ways. But my my rebelling wasn't so much to become politically conservative; it was to do things like not getting tattoos or not getting my, you know, taking you out my earring. Right. You were square. You turned it. You, yeah. You I mean, I don't like to think of myself as square, but. Right, right. You know, but I, I mean, that's the direction you went into. Yeah. And, 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 and again, my, it's not that my parents were, you know, were so. Is that. Tatted. Uh, my adoptive parents are. Yeah. My biological parents are not. Right. Um, but, you know, I think in some ways, even, you know, even becoming a lawyer. Um, right. That's it, why I say that thing, but yeah. It, you know, in some ways, like, my dad refused to recognize the authority of the court. Right. So for me then to go to law school, become a public defender, and, and all the more the far, so yeah, right, right now to run to be side, a district attorney yeah. is arguably a, a form of rebellion. Right. I mean, I don't. I, my parents love me and support me. Uh, it's not a choice that that they probably ever would have made. Mm. But um, you know, it's. I, I don't think about it in terms of rebellion. I think about it right. as living a life that's based in principles and and values and commitments to social justice and equality and inclusion and finding ways to be effective and seeking to further those goals. Right. Do they see, I mean, they understand the, the p potential, right, of doing it from within the system. It's, but they just may disagree with you over whether that's... They, they haven't told me that oh, they, they disagree. Told, I mean, they've said that they're worried, I think, about two things. One is that they will be, they and their, their mistakes will be used against me. Right. That I'll be attacked because of things they did, um, which will happen. Um, and I think they're worried that that as good as my intentions are, and as hardworking as I am, and as committed as I am, that I'm I'm taking on a very, very, very massive challenge. Right. And how far I can go and how much I can accomplish depends um, on factors that are greater than I am. Right. On the social movements that will help get me elected and. And the extent to which those movements continue to create political space for me to do the things that I'm promising right. to do in my campaign and hold you accountable, right? Exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. um, we, I, Larry Krasner, I think, did something um, with Mamiya. He yeah, he chose to an appeal. A Larry Krasner, his office is, is now handling the Mamiya case, and initially Larry did a number of things that I think made Mamiya supporters very happy. They did they disclosed boxes of evidence mm -hmm. that had never been disclosed. Um, they didn't oppose a certain procedural maneuver to reopen the case, but then they got a ruling from a judge that favored a ruling in favor of Mumia that they then chose to appeal. And Mumia's supporters were very upset that he was choosing to appeal that. They wanted him to just right. leave, leave the ruling yeah. alone. Larry Grasner defended himself uh, largely by saying, this isn't about Mumia. This is about the precedent that this ruling would set, and it's a bad precedent. And, mm -hmm. Then he reversed course and, right. and changed his mind. So it's an example of the ways in which, um, you know, the, the, the politics of being, it's politics full stop, but then also the particular complexities of running an office that has been so traditionally focused exclusively on meeting out punishment right. and now trying to undo some of that damage right. and, and do it in a way that's both consistent with public safety and order and fairness, but also responsive to the demands of communities who've been, you know, who've borne the brunt of uh, draconian war on drugs and excessive force by police and um, extreme prison sentences that destroy entire families and right. communities.
have have people already used these attacks against you? I'm actually you said that they, they will. Have they used them yet? Have yeah, some people have. Yeah, there's there's some uh, some hit pieces out there that talk about you know very out of context, very misleading. Uh, that that talk about my family background and you know other work I've done around immigration issues or international human rights issues um, yeah. to try to paint a picture of me as being a communist or or someone who voters can't trust with a position as significant as district attorney. Right. Do you, are you running to be a decarceral DA? Absolutely. I'm committed to supporting our board of supervisors and closing juvenile hall, which they just voted 10 to 1 uh, this week to do. And uh, but, it, but it's going to take partners in the district yeah. attorney's office to accomplish that goal. The legislation isn't enough. I'm committed to being that partner. And we have a jail in San Francisco called County Jail Number 4, which is seismically unsafe. Um, if there's an earthquake, everybody in it will die. Wow. And uh, it's the subject of, of litigation right now, in part because uh, there's daily sewage floods into the sleeping areas where the inmates live. Um, it's not safe. It's not humane. And frankly, we don't need it. We have other jail space that's more than adequate. Um, what we need to do is reduce the jail population by giving people who are in jail um, you know, access to treatment, mental health treatment, yeah. uh, drug, drug addiction treatment. Um, and by releasing people who are in jail only because they can't pay bail, not because they pose right. a public safety risk, but because they're poor. Right. And if we did that, we could easily reduce the jail population safely by enough to close County Jail 4. I'm absolutely a decarceral uh, uh, prosecutor. I believe that we make our community safer by using incarceration as a last resort mm -hmm. rather than as a first resort. Right. And so a lot of people are running under the uh, banner of a, a progressive, right, prosecutor. Um, what, what is something that a progressive prosecutor who's not a decarceral prosecutor does? Um, we will take, we can take a, in a little bit, we can take a break, yeah. You're doing so good. Yeah, you're doing so good. So good. Yeah. Well, you know, I think progressive prosecutors, you know, quote unquote, uh, are people who are trying to win office because they're seeking political power, right. often to use the office of district attorney as a stepping stone to other more powerful right. positions, whether it be mayor or attorney general or senator or governor. Uh, and I think there are people who are calling themselves progressive often because it's politically expedient, because yeah. right now that's a popular trend across sure. the country. But I think substantively what, what that means is right now in this moment that people would, for example, support uh, marijuana legalization. Right. But of course in California that, that mm. already happened by state proposition. Yeah. Or it would mean supporting things like not prosecuting uh, consensual sex yeah. work. Or it would mean things like... Um, Death penalty, or yeah, posing a death penalty exactly. It would mean saying that you're going to prosecute police uh, misconduct, but whether you actually do it or not, of course, is going to, has to depend on a case by case basis. Right. And I think in reality, many people who call themselves progressive prosecutors would not ever mm -hmm. follow through on a commitment to prosecute police right. misconduct. Um, and it seems like that in this weird way, being a progressive and decarceral DA means that you're almost like outsourcing the work. Because that's right, right? yeah. You're because because most of the work that see the problem is historically the last thirty years the criminal justice system has been a dumping ground for other problems for okay. mental health problems for drug addiction problems for social problems, and some of those things can appropriately and effectively be dealt with through the criminal justice system, but not most of them. Right. And it's much more cost effective, much more humane um, to, as you say, outsource, to say to the Department of Public Health and to some of the nonprofits in this space, right. hey, what we really need is more beds, not in jails, but in residential mental health treatment facilities or in 
residential drug treatment facilities. Or what we really need is more case managers to help people learn English and find jobs so they're not on the corner selling drugs. Right. And the district attorney's office is not particularly well-placed to do that work. Yeah. But that's the work that's going to keep us safe. That's right. the work that's going to decrease the prison population, the jail population. That's the work that's actually going to reduce... That's actually going to reduce our jail population and our crime rate right. simultaneously. Yeah, it's re-outsourcing, right? Because it's, it's taking things out of the uh, DA's office that weren't always there and shouldn't have been there. Exactly. Right? Um, I think that one of the, the interesting things that's happened, and I wonder how much of this is about media and certain cases just becoming public, but you have people who are the left, you know, and compassionate people or, or uh, progressive people, we've always thought and worried about and been concerned with prisoners' rights, right, and um, and the, the rights of the criminalized people. But then you have people who really don't care, and they're kind of classic tough-on-crime people. I think the difference is that those people are now seeing that these things aren't working. So even if you're not a touchy-feely, kumbaya, right. social justice-oriented person, I think people are seeing that it's not working, it doesn't help victims, and that when you destroy communities, yep. you're not making anyone safe. So even if you are vindictive, like even if you're, if you're not particularly forgiving, um, I think people just are seeing it as more... Uh, pragmatic, more useful, and better for victims. That's right. That's why, you know, Donald Trump signed the First right. Step Act. That's why the Koch brothers are funding a lot of this work. That's why Kamala Harris and Rand Paul co-sponsored legislation. I mean, people across the political spectrum, from as far right to as far left, agree that the system's broken. It's too expensive for taxpayers. Libertarians want to spend less money. Right. Uh, it's inhumane. It's destructive to communities. There's far cheaper uh, and more effective ways to address these problems. Everybody agrees on that. We obviously disagree about what the change should look like. Right. Tell people more about what it's like when you're, when your parents are incarcerated. What the effect is on you, on children. What you experience, what you've seen on other children, and how that's influenced what you see. Um, why you think reform is so necessary, and what I justice mean, looks there, like. There's a tremendous stigma that comes with having parents yeah. incarcerated. There's a there's a there's a stigma. There's an economic hardship. There's an emotional trauma. Um, and it affects everybody a little bit differently, but, but I can tell you it makes it more likely for kids to end up incarcerated themselves because primarily the trauma and the, and the economic hardship. Um, and, you know, that's not just something that I know empirically from studies and research, although I have researched and published on the issue. It's something that I know from my own firsthand lived experience because so many of the kids who were in line at the metal detector in the prison visiting room with me, um, Kids who I became friends with over the years of visiting our mothers or our fathers in the same prison visiting room, so many of them ended up in, in, in prison themselves. One of them, in particular, a, a friend of mine who was a very good friend and actually a role model. When I was having my most difficult moments in school and temper tantrums on prison visits and, and, and falling behind my classmates, Lorenzo was excelling. He was a couple years older than me, and, and he was someone my mom used to tell me, can't you be more like Lorenzo? You know, he's doing well. He's the star of the basketball team. Um, well, my freshman year at Yale, which is pretty much the you know most privileged, resource-rich place an 18-year-old can find right. himself, I got a letter from my father telling me he'd met Lorenzo on his cell block. Wow. And Lorenzo did five years, ended up getting deported to a country that he really never knew that he'd been born in. But that's an example of the what way Guyana, British Guyana. Yeah. And, you know, he'd been there when he was one and two and never again, didn't have a family there that he knew. 
but it's an example of how, you know, if, if somebody like me, I'm white, I'm born in the United States, I, I grew up in a middle-class family, but in his shoes, I would have had somebody in my network who would have made me go through the paperwork to become a citizen. He could have, easily. Right. But he just never did. He didn't have the social capital. He didn't have the financial capital to pay a lawyer to do the paperwork. And so when he did get arrested, not only did he not get the second chances that so many wealthier, whiter, non-immigrant kids get, but he also suffered life-altering, severe collateral consequences that last far longer than his period of incarceration for a nonviolent crime. Right. How did you feel the impact and the stigma? How, how did it affect the way you saw yourself having parents in jail? I think it depended on the moment. You know, there were moments when it made me feel alone, feel isolated, feel unloved, feel abandoned. Um, there were times when I felt guilty, that I felt like I, I was responsible for their bad choices. Um, and I think that's a common thing that, 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 that victims experience, actually. A lot of victims of crime uh, blame themselves. And, you know, in many ways, I, I was a victim of my parents' crime. Not, right. not directly, but indirectly. Um, not so dissimilar from the way family members of immediate victims are also affected right. by crime. Right. Um, there's a ripple effect every time someone commits a crime, especially a violent crime, that affects entire communities. And the problem with prisons is that they don't hold people accountable. Mm -hmm. They just punish people. Prisons are really, really good at punishment. Right. They're really bad at accountability, reconciliation, yeah. restoring the communities to the way they were before the harm was caused. Right, yeah. And it's so weird because it's like, if you wanted to throw people in jail for life, which obviously I'm against, but I, that like kind of makes sense. If you're gonna put someone in solitary, keep them there, but you're re-releasing, like again, just from that, it's so, even if you have no empathy for these people and you just care or about their families, quote unquote, right, right, of course, public you safety. just care about quote unquote public right. safety, yeah. And that's one of the challenges I think for for decarceral prosecutors, for, for truly progressive prosecutors, I think is, is to engage in the difficult work of mm. expanding the conversation about right. public safety to include more than just the property owner whose sure. car gets broken into right, 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 yeah. or the store owner whose you know uh, goods get shoplifted. Right. Um, you know, to include the person who goes to jail and can't buy their way out because they're too poor to pay right. bail and they get raped while they're in jail. Right. Or the child whose mother is taken away because of a property crime and then grows up without a mother right, uh, yeah. or, you know, or all the other, all the other ways in which our current approach to criminal justice make us less safe. The person who goes to jail on a nonviolent offense and then because of their experience in jail, loses their job and comes home right. only to commit another more serious crime, right. which happens every day in America. Right. Yeah. Why is this happening? Is there, I mean, we talk about the prison industrial system, but what does that actually mean? Look, there's a, there's a long history of, using the apparatus of the state to enslave and oppress certain social groups, particularly different racial groups. And there are folks who've written books like Michelle Alexander, Angela Davis, others, that really trace the history of oppression against the black community in particular, but also immigrants, from the pre-Civil War era all the way up until the rise of mass incarceration. I think it's a complicated story, one that, you know, private industry and private prisons plays a small, a small role right. in, one that um, the, you know, the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army and the, and the social movements of the 60s and 70s plays a role in. Um, you know, I think there's an argument, Christian Parenti has a great book on this as well, I mean, that, that 
tracks the use of the prison system as a way to control and oppress particular social and economic groups. I think it's more complicated than that, but that's a big part of the picture. I mean, their books engage with this topic in, in a level of complexity I can't do in the time we have. Yeah, there's there's a lot of great stuff on this that people can read who are interested in digging deeper and and, and doing their own research. But what I will say is that that's all part of why we have this system. And that if you look at the role police play in poor black and brown communities, it's a very different role than the one that they play in wealthy white communities. Yeah, that's funny. When I was talking to Alex Vitale, I was saying, what does abolition look like? He said, but he said, look, we already have abolition in in private schools on the Upper East Side, right, and sure. Katie, you know, if you if you go to private school on the Upper East Side and you're caught doing drugs, yep. they don't call the police. They say, Katie, why did you do that? They may not even tell your parents. Right. They may say, sure. don't do it again. Yep. Maybe they'll get a therapist in. You know, yep. it is a space where the Absolutely. police don't intervene. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, look, I I went to Yale College. The kids in the Yale College dorms drink underage, right. do drugs. There's you know, there's all kinds yeah. of technically criminal activity that occurs. Right. And instead of having police officers from the Yale Police Department go undercover to prosecute date rape, for example, on campus, or to prosecute underage drinking and drug use, the cocaine and other drugs being used on campus, they're going down the street to poor black communities in New Haven and arresting people in the community for drugs. Right. right? And, and, and you see this really all over. I mean, big picture, it's not that we shouldn't be prosecuting any crimes. It's that we should enforce the law equally. Mm-hmm. And right now, let's take San Francisco. We're very quick to allocate resources to arrest people who sell drugs on the street corner. Where's the resources to bring that same war on drugs to the doctors who write the prescriptions, to the pharmacies that sell the drugs that they know are going to end up being sold on street corners? Where's that same level of political will when it comes time to prosecute police who use physical violence against vulnerable, (laughs) unarmed civilians? Where's that same political will to prosecute landlords who fraudulently evict their tenants and put them on the street, contributing to our housing crisis, our homelessness crisis? Where's the level of political will we need to prosecute theft when it's, instead of, it's easy to prosecute a poor person of color for theft, but for, for, for shoplifting or for burglary, but where's the political will to prosecute the employer who steals from undocumented immigrant workers for theft? Right, yeah. Uh, it's when Donna Lieberman um, the, from NYCLU was saying how she, her opinion of it, it's hard to look at prosecutors who would, you know, prosecute people for for things and then go home and smoke a joint, right? Right. Um, There's a real contradiction in the way that we right. enforce law. Yeah. Let's say you're a DA, right? You, you you stop prosecuting things that shouldn't be prosecuted. You invest, you take some of your budget and put it into public health and education. The actual, like, changing how, how jails function. Is that something that the DA can do? Is that something that there's a lot of um, activism around? Do, do people need to be in cells? I mean, can people yeah. live in, in facilities? So, yeah, there's, I mean, jails are run by sheriffs for the most part, and the sheriffs have a lot of control and yeah. autonomy. Like in San Francisco, the sheriff is elected, and the sheriff has a lot of autonomy over what programs exist, how people yeah. are classified and moved around within the jail. Uh, the DA does not have a lot of control over that. There is a lot of social activism around yeah. those issues which I think are you know playing an important role in shifting the conversation around things like where transgender folks are housed mm-hmm. um, within a jail but you know I think big picture as a district attorney what I would want is if somebody's in jail I knowing that the overwhelming majority of people in jail are going to get released quickly in San Francisco 65 percent of people who go into jail spend a week or less there 
So we're dealing with a population that is going to be coming home very, very soon. Right. Overwhelmingly. There's a, right. a handful of people who won't. But the vast majority of people will come back maybe on probation or, 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 or what have you, but most of them will be released within a week. And so we want that time in jail to look like a positive intervention rather than destabling disruption. Right. So I'll give you an example. Somebody gets arrested in San Francisco, put in jail. Let's say they're homeless and drug addicted. Well, regardless of whether the district attorney chooses to charge them with a crime, we need the 48 hours or so that they're in jail while the district attorney is evaluating whether or not to charge them with a crime to triage. What services do they need? Are they homeless? Do they need a job? If they have a job, how can we help keep their jobs so they don't lose it while they're sitting in jail? Do they have childcare needs? Do they have mental health needs? San Francisco is a tremendously resource-rich city, and we have an amazing array of nonprofits and, um, and public health options. Jail can be a clearinghouse for connecting those most in need and those most marginalized with the various services and opportunities that exist. But right now, we're doing the opposite. We're taking people who are vulnerable, and we're ensuring that they lose their jobs, that if they're homeless, they lose all their property, that if they're on medication, they miss their dosages. We need to use arrests and bookings into jail as an opportunity to get people off the street and on their feet, not to destabilize their lives. Mm -hmm. So what's on your agenda? Yeah, ranging from the easiest thing that you could just do, it's up to you, that's it, you call the shots, to the hardest that you would need a lot of support for. Well, the easiest, I mean, the easiest thing is, is you know, things that can be office-wide policy that are enforceable. So things, for example, like saying, we're not going to ever charge a three-strikes case. Or we're not ever going to charge a gang allegation because it's racist, the way that they're used. Yeah. Not that there aren't real gangs, no, but that but if, yeah. if someone commits a murder, prosecute them for murder. Did you, see, did you see about that? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 and in San Francisco too, all yeah. across the country, the way that gang charges are used is is not meaningful from a public safety right. or criminal justice standpoint. Should the police investigate criminal street gangs? Sure. Should they have special resources to, to focus on them? Perhaps. But should we be adding extra charges that open right. the door to criminalizing an entire culture in front of a jury? Absolutely not. Um, and we don't need to when, you know, if you're involved in a gang killing, the killing is going to send you to prison for life anyway. You don't need the gang charge on top of that to prejudice the jury against yeah. the person. Um, so there's certain things like that which can easily be done from the top. Um, you know, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia now requires his line attorneys at every sentencing hearing to say to the judge, uh, if they're asking the judge to send someone to a year, they're required to say, and this is what it's going to cost taxpayers, um, and put on the record the fiscal cost of the sentence that they're recommending, and then you know let the judge consider whether there's a better, more cost-effective alternative. Um, I think that's a really you know, important way to engage in a public education process, not just with voters and taxpayers, but also with judges and lawyers about like the choices that we are making every day in criminal courts are so expensive and so destructive to human beings and families with so little to show for it. Um, that's an example of a policy that can easily be implemented from the top down on day one. Um, some other things are harder. So I'm committed to running an office that does not engage in a practice known as overcharging. Overcharging is when you take somebody who shoplifts and you say, right. well, we're going to charge you with a shoplift, with a commercial burglary, with a robbery, with a possession of stolen goods, with a accessory, right? And you add up all these charges right. and, and make them more serious and make the exposure yeah. greater. Um, gamesmanship, right? Right. And so that gives you leverage. Bonds, call it, yeah. It's gamesmanship because yeah. then you have leverage and then you say to them, well, if you plead a shoplifting, we'll dismiss right. the other charges right. when that's all you should have been charged with in the beginning. 
So you coerce people into waiving their constitutional rights, et cetera. There's, there's a lot of problems with it. Um, it's a harder practice to root out in an office because right. every case is different. And so unless you're going to personally take the time to look at every charging decision, you have to have a manager in charge of your rebooking division that you trust yeah. and who's committed to the same values and principles that, that I'm committed to. Yeah. Let's give you a, should we do a little break with her? And then, and I, do you like Chesa? So would you vote for him if he was running for president? Yeah. Well, how come? What would you say? What would your reason be? He got married. He's not married yet, but he's getting married. Yeah, and you like that? You want you because like because he's engaged. Because yeah. he's engaged. Wow, good vocabulary. Yeah, and so you like a guy who who really commits. You like a you think for DA or president or politician, you like someone who takes action, decisive, who's committed, long term solutions, right? I'm so curious about how you navigate your parents' politics and how they shape your views. And also how you navigate, you balance that with being running for DA. Yeah. I mean, it, this is a unique moment in American history. It's, it's the first time in a lifetime when there's a national consensus that, that mass incarceration is not the way forward. Um, there's tremendous debate about how to decarcerate safely and, and, and humanely and justly. And in San Francisco, it's the first time in over 110 years when we have no incumbent running for reelection right. in um, in the DA race. And so it's an opportunity for a progressive resource rich city like San Francisco to play a leadership role in this national conversation mm -hmm. and to create policies that are models for how we can address the root causes of crime in ways that are humane and effective, cost effective and effective in terms of reducing recidivism and keeping our communities safe that don't involve this addiction to punishment and quote unquote tough on crime policies. Right. Um, and have you thought about how, what, what, I mean, I don't know if you've wrestled with this, with this or thought about this, what a fair way to, um, prosecute your parents would have been? Did you ever think about this? Is this a weird question? Yeah. Well, I think my, my parents could have been and should have been prosecuted. I think prosecuting them for felony murder, I think the felony murder law is abhorrent. Right. I think there's a reason why California just did away with it, why the United States is one of the only countries in the world yeah. that has anything remotely like it. Every other area of criminal law, including the United States, people are held accountable for the crimes that right. they actually commit. Right. And in felony murder, you can not even know that there were right. weapons yeah. involved. Right. You cannot even be on scene where somebody gets hurt and still get charged with murder and face the same consequences as if you had pulled the trigger yourself. Right. That's crazy. So you can commit a crime like while you're dropping someone off. Right. Who commits the murder, and then you're right? Or you could be able, you could make a plan to 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 go burglarize a home, not expecting anybody to be in the home, right? Not, not knowing, knowing that your partner person has, is, yeah. is armed, right? Or they might not even be armed, and you're just the lookout. Sure. And then the person goes into the home. Turns out someone is in the house, yeah. And maybe they take a weapon from within the house and yeah. use it. You're you're responsible for for a murder, even though you had no intention whatsoever, and right. were not directly involved in any physical violence, right? That's not a. It's not an effective deterrent because it's too complicated right, for yeah. people to know about and it. And the whole even point is you're not thinking about it when it's happening. You don't expect right? to get yeah. caught, or you wouldn't do it. Right. So it's not an effective deterrent, and it and it results in drastically uh, unequal punishments for people that are disproportionate to the role they play in a crime. Yeah. So I, you know, I think in my parents' case, they should have been prosecuted. I think there should have been an opportunity for restorative justice. Maybe the victims in that case wouldn't have right. wanted it. Anyway, yeah. And I think in a case like that. You, 
there's a role for prison to play. Do you ever feel conflicted about um, participating in the system that is keeping your father in jail? So, I mean, it's so unjust. Does that inspire you to do what you do? Does it sometimes make you want to throw up your hands and, like, not do law at all? What's the... Yeah, both things are true. I mean, as a public defender, like, I... I became a public right. defender because I, I know that the system's not fair and I know that it's not working. And I know that poor people and immigrants and women don't get a fair sh- chance. And so as a public defender, I was able to fight for those people one case at a time. Yeah. And I made a huge difference in some of their lives. But mm-hmm. I also saw that no matter what the outcome was, all too often, the people who were getting arrested by the police right. or who were committing crime were doing it again. Because whether I won the case or lost the case, they were going back to the same communities that don't have the resources or the opportunities or the investment or the support. Uh, and they still weren't getting treatment for their drug addiction or their mental illness. And it became really frustrating, not just because of my dad's case or the injustices, you know, in, in, in cases that are closer to home, but because of the ones that I worked on every day as a public defender. And, and that's why I started doing systemic impact litigation work. That's why I started fighting money bail. That's why I launched uh, uh, early representation unit in the public defender's office. It's why I worked to end cooperation between local law enforcement and, and ICE in San Francisco back in 2012, uh, because I recognized that there were these systemic problems that simply couldn't effectively be addressed one case at a time. Right. Running for district attorney is a way to make that same systemic change on a much wider scale, a much broader scale, and to do it much more more efficiently and quickly. Yeah. Any thoughts on Kamala Harris or your uh, opponents? Uh, you know, I'll support any candidate who can beat sure. Donald Trump. Um, I, you know, I don't, I don't think Kamala Harris is my first choice. Right. I mean, when she was in sorry, when she was in uh, California. Yeah, it was, it was a different era. I yeah. give her a lot of credit for refusing to seek the death penalty. I think um, it's unfortunate that that you know she didn't play more of a leadership role in in, in ending the war on drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think her policy of prosecuting parents when kids um, were truant. You know, truant in school right. was, was really problematic and, and destructive to, to, to families that are already in trouble. Um, and I think there was a real failure um, during her her tenure to hold police accountable for, for the violence that they yeah. commit. But, you know, I also want to be fair and judge her in the context of the times. Of the times, yeah. you know, and and, the, and her her willingness to step up and, and and resist tremendous police pressure to prosecute and to seek the death penalty, yeah, um, is commendable, and it wasn't easy. Why did Gavin Newsom make uh, put a temporary moratorium? Um, why didn't he get rid of it? I I think that, and I, I'm not an expert on this particular issue, but my understanding is that um, the law in California that authorizes the death penalty was passed at least in part through voter proposition initiatives and it can't be undone unless we do it oh, the same way okay, in its entirety. It. And um, what was it, how old were you when your mom got released and can you just talk briefly about what that was like, how it affected your life? I had just graduated from college. I was, um, I had just turned 23 when I got the news that she'd been granted parole. We didn't know exactly when she was going to get released. I was on my way to Oxford to start my Rhodes Scholarship. I had a couple of weeks uh, of summer vacation left before I started up at Oxford. And I was in a car uh, with my brother driving from California to Chicago when we got a phone call saying that 
that she'd been released. Who called you? Who was the... It was a friend of hers. Um, we, we'd been on family vacation. We were... This is sort of pre-cell phone era. Uh-huh. And so it was not very easy to, right. to, to get in touch with people. And my mom had gotten... We knew she was going on her parole board. I'd been actively working on her parole campaign. Um, so we knew to expect the news. We just didn't know exactly what it was going to be or when. And uh, we, my brother and I stopped at a, at a gas station and, and kind of called someone who my mom had told us to check in with, who she was going to have easy access to by phone. She gave us the good news. Um, you know, we, it, was, it, was, it was sad, but it was a happy sad. I mean, it was like just like this, this intense, lifelong burden in some way being relieved, but also the uncertainty of what's next and, and what does that mean in terms of our relationship. Uh, mm. And so, but it was, it was, you know, you, I was, I was crying, but it was, it was, it was tears of joy, but it was also like this sadness that it had taken so long and so mm. much to get here. Um, and we didn't know when she was going to get released. So I, I went ahead with a plan to visit to my father and I was actually in my father's prison when my mom physically walked out of her prison for the first time. Um, and I went straight from my father's prison to, to, to see her, uh, to spend a few days with her before she took me uh, and to see me off on my way to England. Wow. And what was it like? To, you had for your entire conscious life, right? How old were you when you are uh, four, 14 months. 14 months. So, my, yeah, my, all my, my memories of my relationship with my mother were all behind bars. Right. But so, we had a really good relationship. We had contact visits. We had a summer program. Um, but, yeah, it was different. Every little thing was different. Walking down the street with her, you know, having her be able to buy things and have money, um, going to the grocery store with her, um, you know, being able to go to the movies. I mean, all the little things that you take for granted that are part of daily life had, had not been part of our life. Being right. able to call her. Uh, my whole life she had to call me. When she got out, I was able to call her on the phone. I mean, a million little different things like that. And then over time, as her parole restrictions were relaxed, you know, we, we were able to travel internationally together. Um, you know, she was able to come and attend my law school graduation, for example. So just being able to share those, you know, those kinds of poignant moments in yeah. life and, and go hiking and go canoeing. And, right. Um, it's been great. Yeah. Um, and you'd hugged and stuff because you could, because you're, yeah, it wasn't yeah. like there wasn't glass. No, we had, we had, we had a very physically affectionate, yeah. con, you know, contact. Before, while she was yeah. in jail. So exactly. that wasn't like, but it was the first time, I guess, when you embraced her, it was the first time you embraced her outside of. First time I saw her wearing anything other than green pants. Wow. Yeah. Um, and what about the relationship between your parents? Well, they weren't allowed, you know, they, they're, they're not legally married, so they weren't allowed when my mom got out, they weren't allowed to have phone calls or, or visits, but eventually, you know, we, we fought for that and they, they first got phone calls, uh, and then eventually they got visits and, you know, I've gone up to visit my dad with my mom a couple times. So how long had they not seen each other? They went something like 25 or 26 years without physically seeing each other or touching each other. And where were they geographically? Both in New York state prisons, different parts of, of but they weren't, yeah. And if they'd been married while they were both incarcerated, if they'd been legally married, phone would it have been different? One, just phone yeah, calls. Yeah, just, just one phone call a year, still no visits. Yeah. Hard to maintain a relationship under those yeah. Yeah. circumstances. Well, um, thank you so much. Thank yeah, you, this Katie. is great. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to the Katie Halper Show. Thanks so much to Chesa Boudin. You can find out more about him at chesaboudin.com. Also, you can follow him online at chesaboudin. And here's a very important update. 18 days before the first open seat election for DA in 110 years, the current district attorney, George Gascon, 
suddenly resigned to pursue a run for the DA's office in Los Angeles. Mayor London Breed, in a move denounced by the ACLU, took the opportunity to appoint Susan Loftus, her preferred candidate in the race. The move sparked protests in the community and was seen as an unethical way for the mayor to influence the election in her favor, because now she kind of seems like the incumbent. Protests have not stopped Loftus from doing this. She's also been criticized by mothers on the march against police brutality for not holding law enforcement accountable. The first act Loftus has taken as interim DA is to kill a misdemeanor diversion program focused on treatment and prevention of crime. Very on brand for the DA. The Katie Helper Show is edited by Ted Reedy. Our theme song is by the band Cordova. What were you like just saying about why like you think well, about Donald um, Trump? What do you think of him? Donald Trump. Why don't you like him? Because Donald Trump always says the wrong things. Like, he makes us say the wrong things. Like, all the weird things that might, that dad say, like, how Trump does, doesn't go to the other people. So the other people can say the wrong words, but the people that are listening to him say the wrong words and the people that take the right words go to the other people that the other people don't like for Donald Trump. The other people listen to Donald Trump in his movies and we see and we watch him on the news on the TV and it's just like it makes no sense. Oh you so you're saying that there are people who like Donald Trump and then there are people who don't like Donald Trump. And yeah, they like we don't like Donald Trump, but we listen to his words and we say it like this. I don't want to say it, be, but it, like the wrong words that dad say, like, oh man, or oh fuck. Curse words, yeah. Oh, you're saying that he says bad words, Donald Trump. And so it makes the, the Donald Trump say to our our family, our family says what Donald Trump says to our family. Donald Trump says to his family that I want to make the other family go away and go to me and like me so they can listen to my words and curse. Got it. Yeah, I get it, I think. And what about Chesa? You would vote, if he ran for president, You would you vote him for him? How come? Instead of Donald Trump, because all the families, kind of like all the families that sleep with Donald Trump, like him because they live there with Donald Trump. And Donald Trump um, is the president right now, and some of the other doctors want to be presidents instead of just boring doctors. Right, or lawyers, right? Like Chase is a lawyer. And what about, um? you said that you liked him because he's married? He's not married, he's getting married, so that means he's what? But when is he going to get married? Chase, when are you getting married? November. November. Chase is getting, like, he, he, he has to vote for that. Right. But he's engaged, right? That's what you said before. He's engaged, or that's what you said, right? I think you knew that word, right? Didn't you know that word? 
Or did you say fiance? What was it? You said a word that I was very impressed that you knew. Um, Remember we were saying that's good because you, you like that he's getting married because it means he's committed long-term plans. I said um, he's getting engaged. Right, he's engaged, yeah. He's engaged, yeah. Are you excited for him? And so... The reason I like him is because he's not like Donald Trump. He doesn't say the wrong words like Donald Trump does. Yeah. So so say, so Chase has your vote. Yeah. Awesome. Sign me five. Great.